Coming up next, the bookening enters into the dystopian world of 1984. The year that Jake was born. True. Everybody, welcome to the Booking. My name is Nathan Albers, and I am your humble and obedient host. Happy November! A very joyful November. Everybody is excited. Election year, good times, and we're joining them and joining you. Reading, we're joining all the good times. Yeah, uh, I am excited to talk about 1984. Actually, it's a novel, and it's by George Orwell. It's got 312 pages. And this is the question that we're going to explore over these next few episodes. We're going to explore several questions. Was this novel? accurately prophetic and worthwhile on that on those grounds and how does it work as a novel does it work as a novel is it a good novel we will explore that question reading a little gourd gore hell we're past halloween man are we brandon yeah we're november <laughs> oh, we yeah. have lots to be thankful okay. for now. okay <laughs> and i thought we established that gourds aren't scary jake i don't know about you but isn't a pumpkin a gourd Maybe. Yeah, pumpkin's a gourd. Yeah, pumpkin is the scariest fruit or gourd or whatever they are, right? What are they? Is gourd its own thing or is it a subcategory of another thing? Botanically speaking, squash and gourds are fruits. In culinary terms, however, squash is typically prepared like a vegetable. Apparently a pumpkin is a squash, but also a gourd. Whoa. What? (laughs) (laughs) According to this. So a pumpkin is a squash and a gourd, but a fruit and a vegetable. It's like the platypus of... Yes. A pumpkin is the platypus of the vegetable kingdom. Is that our next t-shirt? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Put it on the next shirt. Yeah. A, a pumpkin is the pla- The pumpkin is the platypus of the vegetable king... Of the... Of the... Can't say vegetable. A pumpkin is the... Pl- the pumpkin is the platypus of the plant kingdom. Yes. We need a P word for kingdom. Like, let's just go all Phylum. the way with the alliteration. Plantation. Brandon, you dunce. Phylum might have a P on the front of it, but alliteratively, it doesn't work. Sight alliteratively, it does, Nathan. Well, sight literature is not a thing, man. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a cool thing that belongs on a shirt. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Could we just keep it simple? Pumpkin is the platypus of plants? Yes. Yeah, well, that works really yeah. well. You are a genius at being concise with the words. You're the George Orwell of this podcast, Nathan. I am the George Orwell. <laughs> Here's the question, though. Was George Orwell a good George Orwell, or was George Orwell a bad George Orwell? Because it seems to me that old George doesn't always live up to his Orwellian. No, he's one of those guys who have a lot of really high principles for their writing, but don't follow it themselves. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I think. I, I mean, the famous passage in that uh, E.B. White quotes where he compares the race goes not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, and he changes it into current observation of contemporary phenomenon. We'll find that blah, 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 certain factors. You guys remember that famous yep, I thing? I remember that. Yeah. Orwell did. 
I don't know that he always applied that to his own writing. I don't think he did always. But he does have some images that are remembered. Like the modern man's head is like a a, a head with a boot the on it. The future is <laughs> yeah. a boot stomping on a human head forever. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> on a human face, maybe. The future is a head <laughs> with the boot on it. <laughs> forever. Uh, two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals five. Yeah, that's pretty famous. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Did you, I mean, I don't know if it was just somebody trolling or what, but that thing was going viral not too long ago. person on Twitter was saying that two plus two equals four is an expression of white supremacy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did see that. And I don't think that person was trolling. I think that person was... Sincere, sincere. right? Sincere. That's yeah. what I thought too. What? Uh, yeah, you know, insofar as all learning derives from certain power structures and blah, 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 blah. You know, Brandon. Yeah, I do. All accepted truths in the Western world are a function of old dead white people Mm -hmm. who were asserting their supremacy. Uh, I mean, we technically got the two plus two system from the the Arabic world. So those are Arabic numerals that we're using. Hmm. Maybe this person was a racist. I think they are just racist. That's probably what it was. We should get on Twitter and make that argument. Actually, (laughs) you are racist. Brandon, I'm sure somebody <laughs> actually <laughs> the error of Arabic culture. No, nobody thought to do anything like that. Uh, no, in the past couple of months. Well, you know, well, it's been a great couple of months, particularly in the realm of politics and it's been fantastic public discourse. We are not heading into a dystopian of our own. No, we're not already there. Listen, I don't know how we're gonna avoid talking a little bit of politics in our discussion of George Orwell, but you know, Brandon will have to take his keys off the foot of the. Book. Book. <laughs> Foot of the book. Bridge <laughs> over the world. His keys on a book. <laughs> forever. Forever. It's just adding that word forever that really makes it metal. Mm-hmm. It's on it's nice that uh, We should but... say it's nice to have Jake back. Yeah. He... We didn't even mention that. Yeah. I it's mean, been he... a long, lonely podcast without Jake. But he has been back for a couple of weeks Look now. who's doing the host duties. Me? Nathan? Kind of Brandon right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, kinda, oh yeah. yeah. Nobody's yeah. been introduced. Is the... Power dynamic changed. Yeah, you know what? I think have that, you overthrown? The, I think that I might need to be the new big brother, the bougie class. Well, I love big brother. So, yeah. are you the pro? Are you a pro? No, no, I'm big brother. Now you are. <laughs> the pros always become big brother, man. That's right. It's all about power. You just got to have the ability to see and be honest with yourself. Yeah, thanks, Goldstein. It's the end. Power is an end. It's the end. It's what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know what? You just think that Goldstein wrote Goldstein? Actually, Big Brother wrote Goldstein. Hey, spoilers, man. That actually, nobody's Big Brother. O'Brien's kind of Big Brother. Nobody's Goldstein. And so is the old man who you thought was so nice. He's actually a thought police Mr. Chamberlain or whatever. Nobody's who they seem except for you and your lover. And then you guys aren't even what you seem because you'll betray each other. Mm -hmm. And she's going to get a lobotomy. Yeah. It's implied. It's a, yeah, it's a dumb detail that I think sucks. She has a scar on her forehead at the end, and it's like, we didn't need that. It's better if she just betrayed oh. him because... He betrayed her. In fact, I would, even, I would even argue maybe that the story would be stronger without the rats. If O'Brien really did just break him with, <laughs> with thought, arguably more powerful. Yeah. A little bit like Mark Studdick and um, that hideous strength, where they have him locked, where the, whatever the bad guys, the, what is their name, like awful or something, they have a... <laughs> nice uh, nice has him locked up in a thing and <laughs> awful <laughs> the mrs 
hard castle McCormick or whatever. Very hard castle. Very hard castle is the tooth fairy. The tooth fairy is <laughs> being mean to him and stuff. Yeah. He's a dominatrix. <laughs> I don't know what that was, but I liked it. All right, folks. We're talking about 1984. Jake, you had a thought. Go My for first it. thought is we should be introduced to our listeners. Oh, have we not been introduced yet? Uh, uh, I think that we're numberless faces in a the party and that the party itself should be represented, which is the bookening. Yeah. But that we don't necessarily have to take identity outside the party. So we don't even really exist, right? We no, don't. just as individuals. Not ex- I mean, as individuals, but we're, I, just one, we're one part of the collective organism. That's right. That is the party. If you clip your fingernails, like, do you die? Do they die? Like, if what? I killed you, would something happen? Like, Whoa, no, you just man, that's some deep stuff. Part of the party, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we hippies or are we uh, <laughs> we socialists? Uh, I'm confused. Is there a We're difference? The brand? Oh, oh, bang! <laughs> okay, so Jake's thought is that we should be introduced. I guess that's true. I didn't introduce. I really am falling down on my job. I'm going to turn you into Big Brother if you introduce me. Don't you even dare do it, Nathan. <laughs> okay, fine. There's that guy over there. <laughs> and then there's Jake Menzel, the master who's a master of reading. Hey. And I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. And I don't think we'll say who this other guy is. Yeah, I mean, even I'm... Even he's going to be talking for most of the show. Just going to say that Big Brother loves me. I love Big Brother. And you guys have been duly noted. Oh, no. <laughs> We've been duly noted. Don't duly note me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please you don't can, note you me. You can note me, but... Don't, don't do, do it duly. Yeah. <laughs> do you duly do anything? Do you duly do anything besides note besides things? Besides note. No, I truly duly note you, though. What? You just don't want to be truly duly noted. This is a real question that I've wondered before. Is anything ever duly done besides note? Like, no, you, you just ever, duly note it. Have you ever heard the phrase, duly, the, the word you duly used, and note doesn't come right after it? No, and I don't, I'm not even sure now, outside of the context of note, what duly even means. I think like it was your due, I think. That's what yeah. I've always assumed. I don't know that I've ever looked it up. We need to duly... Explore the question of context, which can be done by none other than our nameless contextual Texan himself. I serve the party, and I serve the better good of the bookening. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I will agree yep. to set context. I will not, however, shoot my six shooters as they are a reminder of the capitalist system of America. Jake, it's, what do you say uh, we uh, scream two minutes of hate at uh, sounds appropriate. the nameless fingernail? All right, I will start we'll the timer right now. You can have two minutes. But that's all you get. You know what? We're going to need a week. We'll wait for hate week. Okay. <laughs> okay. We can't fit it into two a, minutes. A, a, every other week probably is what we need. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite week. Hate week? Yeah. Because it allows you guys to have the feeling of releasing your energy. <laughs> Speaking of releasing energy. <laughs> that's my stomach. Yeah. But actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing's being released, I promise. He said hate week, not Eight week, Jake. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I had that one in the chamber for Brandon, but I used it for you instead. Oh, good oh. job <laughs> from taking that from me, Jake. Oh, yeah. Taco I just, Bella, my stomach's growling. Yeah, for our, talking. We don't know if the, the mic picked that up, folks, but it was the sound of Niagara Falls, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it was Niagara. <laughs> it's just a stomach growling. It's not like. It was a loud growl. <laughs> okay, but that's, yeah, okay. I'm sorry my metaphor wasn't as good as, uh, wasn't a good uh, uh ticulation What was that thing you said earlier? A viz. Visticulation, yes, was was the word that he said. <laughs> Where I was like, there's no such thing as visticulation. Then Brandon adjusted his little <laughs> monocle and take a sip of sherry and said, actually, Nathan, there it is. <laughs> uh, Are you guys uh, rewriting history here? <laughs> 
don't remember this. Uh, what was it? Um, Sipo? A Sipo. Yeah. A Sipo. I don't know, man. Let's do some context. Yeah, let's do some context. 1984, George Gorehell. Nathan, that was so last month. <laughs> Stop scary. It. It's a ditopian. Oh, yeah. Um, well, people. <laughs> well, people. <laughs> Come on, you. people now. <laughs> Let me tell you. There is, of all the, this is a strange fact. And actually, I didn't verify this, but now I'm going to. <laughs> We're not even sure if it's a fact. George Orwell was a woman. (laughs) (laughs) That is the theory I'm running on right now. No, I'm just speculating here. I'm speculating. (laughs) Speculating here. Uh, You can Uh, levitate right off this floor right now. uh, Yeah. Yeah. This guy. Yeah, it's definitely. Definitely. No. (laughs) Check this out. Children in a trench coat standing on each other's shoulders. You would think that Hemingway. So I'm just on on Wikipedia right now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You would think the Hemingway. Okay, so here's Hemingway. Just watch. I'm going to scroll down. Okay. okay. He's got a fair amount of stuff on him, right? There's a lot of Hemingway in Wikipedia. Yes, sir. There's a lot of Hemingway. But watch this for this guy. You ready? Yeah. Brandon is currently scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You know, there are a lot more pictures. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I've noticed there are more pictures. If, That's the main but, thing that I've noticed. But look at that. I'm still scrolling. <laughs> this guy gets more written about his boring life. <laughs> Than anybody else. I mean, it's not like there's that much that happened with this guy. Brandon, you're <laughs> revealing some cards here. No, I mean, there's stuff that we can talk about, but it's just like I had to wade through so much just to find out the two or three sentences that I have to say about his biography. Okay, well, I guess some people are more interested in the life of this great writer who changed American letters or English <laughs> letters or whatever he did. Did he, did he change English letters? Do you I don't think know what he did. He did. I mean, he he introduced one of the most prominent styles of literature that we have today, the dystopian mm-hmm. or political kind of, though. Even then, he he was drawing on other things that had already come before him, which we'll get there when we talk about dystopian literature. Mm-hmm. But it's just, uh, so I, I guess the question in my mind is why this guy, he's got like sort of the aura that surrounds him that surrounds Ayn Rand. And I think these uh, writers who typically do this sort of book, write this sort of book, Mm -hmm. draw this particular crowd that kind of turns them into a hero. And so that they get a Wikipedia page that I think is probably four times the size of Ernest Hemingway's. Well, there are certain authors that can go, their slogans and their ideas and things can go on a poster in a dorm room, let's say, or a... Ernest Hemingway didn't give us concepts that we use every day. Yeah, man. Like Newspeak. Big Brother. Big Brother. That's true. Like, I mean, nobody in this room is going to argue that Orwell can touch Hemingway as a writer. But if you just look at popular impact, cultural impact. Hemingway is kind of ap- actively disdained by a lot of people, everybody. But it, but Orwell's given lots of people handles. Mm. Yeah. Or lots of things, you know. How many times do we make fun of the fact that Big Brother is listening on our iPhones or mm-hmm. watching us on CCTV cams or whatever. Right. And that whole concept comes from Orwell, or at least he popularized it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's one of these characters that I think the way you make sense of him is he, just to briefly touch on his bio, he has an interesting history because even today he's looked at, people have mixed feelings about Orwell. His main writing career was as a journalist and his main writing career was also kind of as an incendiary journalist in the sense that 
he was always he was a bit like the Alex Jones kind of camp, even though he wasn't crazy like that. He was actually a fairly one of the people's favorite facts about Orwell is that he was also a socialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he wasn't like an extremist socialist. He was actually a fairly still English conservative, even towards the end of his life. He just had these reporting projects that he did. So one of his first books was called The Road to Why, I guess you say it, Wigan, mm-hmm. Wigan Pier. But so what he had done, so this was after, so he grew up in India. He had a fairly successful, wealthy family. Um, then he would go off and try to start a career as a, a writer, a journalist, some mild success. Then he would actually have a teaching career for just a few years. So this was right after that period. So he had the first part of his life was just fairly normal, you know, went to a boarding school, but he was known as being a fairly isolated boy with just like a couple of friends, but also he really loved to fight and argue. That was one of his favorite things to do, fight through argument. He wasn't like a fist fighter or Mm -hmm. something, but he was known as being someone who would argue. And he was actually at college known as a fairly unpleasant person because he was just always arguing, always finding a way to rile somebody's feathers. And so that's why, in my mind, I began to think of him as the equivalent of someone who's just out to say, and through journalism, sometimes some shocking things, mm-hmm. like, because that gets them attention. Now, that said, he also, he, I mean, later in his literary career, he would write some essays on other writers, and one of his heroes was, can you guess who, as far as writers who had come before him? Uh, let's see. Give us a hint. Is it a famous essayist or? It's a famous novelist and also a novelist. You, so what's fun, what's weird about this is just not who you would think. Is it Dickens? Yeah, it is Dickens. But the reason is, is because Dickens was also Socially had similar, conscious, similar conscious. sympathies. Yeah. So in kind of a similar story in the sense of how they came to their sympathies, Dickens came to his sympathies by wandering around London and going to the poor places and seeing things that were pretty, fairly awful. And so did Orwell. So this is kind of, he had two periods of his life that led to his transition into socialism. One was where, when he was doing the background writing for this road to Wigan Pier. So Wigan Pier is based on the social conditions in economically depressed Northern England. And so he went and he toured, he saw all the conditions. He went and saw these families, the way that they were oppressed, the economic conditions that kept them there. And he slowly began to have his mind changed about capitalism. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, he began to slowly hate capitalism, and it was really when he went off to the Spanish Civil War, which was heavily influential in a lot of people's lives at the time. I don't even think I named what period he was from, but we'll get there in a minute. We're kind of placing him by talking about the events that he was a part of. But he went and he was a part of the Spanish Civil War, and the thing to know about the Spanish Civil War is it was kind of a struggle over fascism before World War II. And so you had a lot of people that went over there to try and take part in this with the rebels. That's the whole, that's what, uh, Robert Jordan and uh, Robert Jordan. Yeah. yeah. And that book that we read by Hemingway, that's from the bell tolls. Yeah, the bell tolls. And so he took part in that. And it was really after that, that he one saw the threat of fascism, but also was convinced to become a socialist. And that would kind of dominate the last part of his career. He became a successful essayist, was a very famous essayist. He would write for some prominent journals, but really what made him his name as far as a figure in literature was when he wrote Animal Farm right after World War II. And that kind of encapsulated his position. And then he would write 1984 as well. And that would kind of just further it. So but those are kind of, those are the two things that he's really remembered for as far as fiction goes would be Animal Farm, which in 1984, and one of the authors, and I'm sure most people have to read in high school. Everybody, did, yeah, did we I, all I have to read Animal Farm? Animal Farm is just no. the book you're going to read in high school. 
Or if I did, I don't remember having to, and I certainly didn't do it. Well, you famously didn't read what you were assigned. I'm guessing you were assigned either 1984 or Animal Form, probably. Probably. I just don't remember being assigned them. Yeah. So he, yeah, as far as writers go, he didn't, I mean, he was married, he, but he doesn't have like any um, spicy things to say about him, Mm -hmm. other than the fact that he did turn to socialism and kind of, and defend it. And uh, I guess the other thing that's fun to point out is that his name wasn't George Orwell. It was Blair. His last name was Blair. But he decided when he began to write early on, he tried on a whole series of names as a, as a pen name, a pseudonym, and he landed on George Orwell because it sounded the most literary. There you go. That's, it that's does sound very And it does sound very literary. I mean, more better than Eric Arthur Blair, which mm-hmm. is what he was, I think it was Eric. Eric right? Arthur Blair sounds like someone who tried to assassinate a president or something. Like yeah, that. I mean, I guess you could do E.A. Blair, but still, it's the Blair, I think, that's uh, the blaring thing that needs to be changed, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to glaring. Yeah. Glaring. Get it? Brandon, we don't, we don't do puns on this podcast. Yeah, I forgot. Um, let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about... <laughs> Orwell's biography. Yep. Gorwell. Gorwell. Gorhell. Gorhell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gord. Gordhell. Gord spelled G-O-R-E-D. He comes from Gordhell. Gorhell. All <laughs> oh, right. Let's just get this out of the way. It's not the most enjoyable thing to read as a novel, I don't think. Maybe one of you guys will argue the opposite of that. That it is the most enjoyable well, thing to read as a novel. <laughs> it's not the most. But Jake's I think the argument to be made for him is that he had either... Like, the guy was writing before television screens. There's a lot of stuff we take for granted, like the telescreens that are just amazingly prescient. I mean, yeah, this is an amazing artifact. Whether it holds up as something that's like a, a real page turner is probably <laughs> incidental. Or a but, great work of literature. Uh, but we'll, one thing, one we'll thing that you can say about him, and so to give the moment, if he lived from 1903 to 1950, so he would have been right in the same period as modernism. He mm-hmm. was ah, yeah. he was in modernism, but wasn't a modernist, mm-hmm. so we're not going to bring all that into this You can discussion. listen to our 200th anniversary, <laughs> Katsiversary. <laughs> you can get all the modernism you ever wanted there. Yep. What he was more involved with, and this would be more similar to like a Tennessee Williams or somebody like that, was the politics of this era. Mm-hmm. And so a, lar- a large part of that had to do with the fact that he was a journalist, and unlike Hemingway, who also had journalistic roots, he it didn't take him into like... So Hemingway did that, and that really solidified his style, but then he also got mixed up with the modernists, and that's why he became Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Orwell became a journalist, saw all the political things, the turmoil, went to the Spanish Civil War, and that's what made him into the guy who wrote, would write 1984 and Animal Farm. Two different paths, kind of similar backgrounds, and a lot of writers at the time had their founding in journalist... That's how they learned to write well. They had their founding in journalist. Well, I paused and decided to say something oh, else. Okay. I was going to say they had their they had their grounding in journalistic schools of thought. Okay, that's that was going to be that. <sighs> you happy now? Yeah. I mean, think about it. you have E.B. White, Rudyard Kipling, Rudyard Kipling. You have uh, the guy we like, Joseph Mitchell. You have um, Chesterton a little bit earlier. Chesterton a little bit earlier. But you also, so there's a John Dos Passos. A lot of these guys were journalists before they were novelists and, uh, or essayists well, and, the, and the other, for the New Yorker, those two guys. George Orwell, he would become an essayist. He has a couple of famous essays. In fact, I'm going to read portions, maybe all of them from two that I think were fairly influential and could help us with this novel. So I have other things up my hat today, guys. We're going to have some fun. Up this your is good. Hat. This, yeah. So many up my hat. Up your hat. <laughs> <laughs> Which gets us to... Uh, the fact that rabbits, yeah, rabbits, <laughs> I am a magician <laughs> really trying to make things ends meet. It's really hard. 
Last time my Brandon is doing a, this from inside a block of ice. Yeah, my kids got a hold of my hat every Christmas Straight and they bring this really annoying snowman to life that I then have to melt. It's really awful and traumatic for them, but hey. Um, <laughs> every Brendan's Christmas ends like Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. <laughs> they should not steal my hat and bring magical men to life made of ice. And then they wouldn't have to see them get melted. That is the lesson. That's the lesson we really want our listeners to take away from today. <laughs> this is the most off the rails episode we've done in a while. <laughs> this is the most out of the gate off the rails episode I think we've ever done. I don't think we've it's We've gotten up- way off the rails, much farther off the rails. <laughs> yeah, but it's before. always been like down the line by degrees. I don't think yeah. we've ever done like a it's our first episode on the book and <laughs> the train is already what if you start... sinking into a swamp. <laughs> what if you put the tr- some mud tires on the train? It <laughs> started it in a field. It's not even a train. It's just some mangled platypus that <laughs> some postmodernist named a train. Put a motor in it and yep. some wheels. And let's get riding around. <laughs> a gourd brought to life by a fairy godmother. Yeah, but yeah. a fairy godmother who sucks. Like the gourd kind of partially came to life. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, it's the Packer House gourd. <laughs> oh man, what can we so say? So many illusions. You're welcome. You guys are gonna have to go back and just listen to the whole bookening oeuvre. Oeuvre. Yeah, we promise that not every episode is like this. But speaking of words, they're yeah. fancy. So that T-shirt design is gonna have to have a platypus drawing a pumpkin carriage yeah. off of off the rails. Speaking of words that are fancy, like oeuvre, but also sound made up, mm-hmm. um, like Jake pointed out, Orwell did give us a lot of neologisms with this book. So mm-hmm. we have Big Brother, we have Thought Police, we have um, Double Think, Newspeak, Double Think, Thought Crime, stuff like that. And so this was definitely a novel that was heavily influential on the way that we think about the world today. And part of that reason is because, A, he was a journalist, he was a part of he he was trained to go out and observe the world and then write about it for journalism, you know? And so... <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. I was wondering what a journalist was. <laughs> now that we've established that... Okay, so he but, was from the school of journalists who go out and write about the world for journalism. <laughs> yeah, well, the point being that the world that he observed... <laughs> With his journalism now. It's <laughs> like a Miss America pageant. <laughs> so like... Journalist from the journalism school went out to write things about for, the for world, journalism. Um, like they for shaped, the journalism, they shaped his and, politics and turned him and the political towards the socialist mindset. Socialism. Oh, and it. once again, he was doing his journalism for journal for journalism <laughs> for journalism. <laughs> yes, he was Nathan. Very good. I'm glad you're listening and learning. Um, <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> confirm one part of that equation <laughs> oh man <laughs> so george gord the point, the point being is what he observed was the shift in politics towards socialism and the general sympathies that people would have especially in the uh, liberal leaning left towards socialism and so as he got wrapped up in those crowds as he went to war as his as he observed things through journalism <laughs> about these things they they changed his mind he became a socialist so Yes, he wrote these things that are, have been very influential on us today politically, but they're also a product of the political moment, in mm-hmm. other words. So I guess all I'm trying to say is that it's not like he could have written this any other time. You had to have Stalin on the rise. You had to have also other socialist movements on the rise so that he could see the sympathy towards what would give rise to communism, but then also the dangers and the risks of it. 
which would be heavily influential in uh, providing the context for Animal Farm and 1984. Mm. So these novels are great and masterpieces and works of genius, yes, but they also are very much bound up with their historical context, you know? So you, for, you could imagine someone writing some other, like Jane Austen, she could have written those mm -hmm. at other times, right? But this one is very much bound up with its moment. Yeah. And so understanding that, understanding that we, they were in the middle of World War II, you had fascism, you had all these political ideologies that were kind of a corrupted brand of socialism. You had this guy who was um, tired of capitalism and the alternative was this thing that obviously could be twisted and made very dangerous. And so his way of responding to that was to write these two novels that showed the dangers of a politic politics that he was also sympathetic to, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of the contradiction at the heart of Orwell that a lot of people like to point out. Well, he was also a socialist, but yeah, you also- The big difference between early 20th century gentlemen's socialism. Yeah. And you also have to understand that the well, world we, the they lived in at the time, you did have abuses against the poor. You had abuses in the workhouse. It wasn't like capitalism was in, I mean, not to give away too, my, too much of my politics, it's not like capitalism still to this day has been the, the shining champion of everything wonderful and Christian, right? I don't, I don't think you need to, I think that people can get capitalism and Christianity a bit confused, like think they're the same thing. That, I don't know why I said that, but still, why did I say that? No, uh, because you wanted to give context to George Orwell. Yeah, and oh, so in other words, yeah, capitalism was doing some awful things at the time. It was leading to some really awful things. Marx had his response against capitalism in the first place because it kind of leads to some awful things. It leads to greed. It leads to, can lead to greed, can lead to uh, taking advantage of the poor, can lead to just prioritizing the workforce and stuff like that over the welfare of the people who are working. So they saw this and they... Uh, they have the wrong response, obviously, but still, that's the context that surrounds this. And then you have fascism and you have Stalinist communism on the rise. And so he wrote these stories as warnings to an extent, as types of journalism, really, because what's happening is through his story, he's still kind of showing you the possible future and the possible reality behind these political systems that he's criticizing, right? So you can even see his journalistic roots within his storytelling. Because what he's concerned with is warning people about what happens if the Stalinist view of the world becomes everything, right? That's 1984. You then also have, can we allegorize and make sense of, and in a sense, parody the rise of the Stalinist state too. You have Animal Farm, right? So anyways, I, th I think it's interesting. This is basically what I'm doing for you guys as a brand of new historicism. I'm showing how his novels were also just products of his time. But in this case, I think it's interesting and important to note that because they are time capsules, but I still think that they have stuff to t tell us and teach us today. So, and they definitely have been very influential. I don't think that they're as, so Ayn Rand's works are very much in the same brand, mm -hmm. but she has the disadvantage of one being an awful writer <laughs> and to, I think, having a form of, I just don't think she was as smart as Orwell, to be honest. Uh, I mean, Orwell at least had observations that are useful. Ayn Rand's observations have the appearance of being useful, which is why libertarians are so fond of her. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm getting some politi political branding here. L libertarians are fond of 
The appearance of utility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Libertarians, if they're fond of anything, it's the appearance of utility and intelligence. Whether or not there's either of them there. <laughs> Can you keep that in? <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping it in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, some libertarians. Yeah, some. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so there you go. And if you want to know more about new historicism, go back and listen to our Lit crit. Lit crit. But it can be useful to see and understand that literature like this, especially literature that's very political, because it is very much a product of its time. Understanding that is useful because it, de- it definitely is a critique of Stalin, right? And it's a critique of that thing that we think is just dis- has disappeared as a threat. But there are aspects of it, what it's saying politically about certain things that still are valuable for us, mm-hmm. right? But they're also valuable in just understanding, okay, here was the, it's like very similar to the crucible, right? Mm-hmm. The crucible to us today, it seems outdated, but part of that flavor. So maybe that's, I'm also trying to deal with my response to 1984 here as well through my context, because I think part of what I don't like about it is some of this, like, it's the same thing that I saw in Fahrenheit 451 with the mechanical hound. It's like, okay, telescreen, really, or the floating fortress, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just like, nobody ever would call anything that, right? It has this air of unreality to it that kind of ruins the illusion. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, like, did you see the mechanical hound that they made in our selling for? Yeah, that thing is frightening. Uh, yeah, but it, the, the, it's the problem. It's the naming, right? It's these guys, since they get the way that these things would be named and included in society wrong, it kind of ruins the illusion. Like they, you know what I mean? But you have to- uh, Like yeah, it seems almost silly and over the top. Well, once, it, once they say it, once Orwell says Newspeak, no, nobody can ever say yeah. Newspeak, right? You can't, yeah. And you have to imagine a world where any, any once army Orwell would- Once Orwell makes the idea of telescreens, nobody, yeah. it has to be television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Presumably somebody thought telescreens and then they said, oh no. Even, because, even if you wanted- and I, you know, a literal thought police, you have to call it something. Something um, else because you can't just have Because Orwell's. Orwell already came up with the idea and said, <laughs> this is a bad, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And now it's passed into common. That's, that's a fair enough point. Although it is hilarious that good old uh, music television called their show about people being under constant surveillance, Big Brother. For a while there in the 90s, it had the connotation of <coughs> dumb teenagers Having sex with each other. <clears throat> yeah. There's my useful contribution to the episode. That was useful, Nathan. <laughs> and MTV's useful contribution to society. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to deal with more of that reaction I've had later mm-hmm. on in the other episodes. So, all right. So the only other thing I really wanted to talk about was placing him kind of, so we've talked about his bio, we've talked more generally about what he did. So I want to talk about, well, actually one thing that I did want to talk about there as far as his writing Yes, he was a product of his time, but also he was he was a good writer and he had good advice. And so along the lines of an E.B. White or a Hemingway, who were journalists, he also, it is interesting, these guys are the ones that tend to have their rules for writers. Mm-hmm. Like E.B. White had his rules for writers, Hemingway had his rules for writers, because they think of, I think it was also just because that period in history, again, contextualizing him historically, that period of history was when people began to think of style more as mm-hmm. a process and more as something that you could teach to others, more as something that has rules and guidelines. The New Yorker had to because they wanted all their writers to kind of be the same, right? That's actually where Hemingway came up with his rules was because it was the the rules of the sun or wherever he was writing for, right? Those yeah. were like the guiding principles of that 
newspaper to make the writing the same. Well, I think it, it's the it's what happens to anyone who <clears throat> has talent that finds themselves in a volume business. Orwell had to write hundreds and thousands of words a year, and he needed some principles because he was going to have to turn over things really quickly. Yeah. And so his famous rules are never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you are used to seeing in print. Mm -hmm. So Good rule. Kind, of, kind of the make it new principle of Ezra Pound. Mm -hmm. Never use a long word where a short one will do. Generally, that's a good rule. If it is possible to cut out a word, always cut it out. That is um, definitely a good rule. That's omit needless words, mm -hmm. which technically... White figured out a way to say White it shorter. figured out, yeah. Strunk did. Uh, never use the passive where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you think of an everyday English equivalent. Break any of these rules sooner than saying anything outright barbarous. <laughs> I like so, that one. And those are his, kind of his six uh, major rules that he had for writers. Why I joined the ILP, and then also what is fascism. This might actually be a good way to read these two things to give us context before starting the next episode. You want to save that for then? Yeah. Give us some meat there. So really the only last thing I really wanted to do as far as broad genre stuff goes, just briefly talk about dystopian literature mm -hmm. because I think it's useful because this is a dystopian novel. What is dystopian literature? Um, <laughs> what is dystopian literature? Yeah, dystopian literature is a brand or a type, a genre of literature that deals typically with sometimes in a post-apocalyptic, sometimes just a state that's fallen apart, but it's focused on a government that is totalitarian and dangerous and frightening. And it's more interested in the, in the governmental structures. That's kind of the focus of, of a dystopian novel. So they focus on the societies and cultures and the, that appear often stable and put together, but actually have this governing force behind it that's dangerous and scary. So if you, so As opposed to an apocalyptic novel where everything's a wasteland and the government's gone. And yeah, sometimes they'll be dystopian. I mean, there'll still be government structures. But there's, for, for it to be post-apocalyptic, you need to have had the apocalyptic event, mm -hmm. right? And so post-apocalyptic novels can also be dystopian. But dystopian has that flavor of the governmental control and oversight. And so not one, some of the, or at least the societies and structures. So one of the earliest examples would be Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, um, because he is looking at all these strange cultures and the like the Brobdingnagians, is that what they are? Of the, course, people. No, those are the um, the giants. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I forget. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Brobdingnagians, the, the, the Yahoos, the, the Lilliputians, or the right. yeah. midgets. Then you have the Yahoos. I think those are the horses. And yes, the, and yeah. whatever the name Homonyms, is of the Homonyms. savage horse-like humans. Yeah, and so that that's one of the earliest instances people have of uh, dystopian literature. Some other examples of dystopian literature, I've never read it, but Zvegny's Zamyatin's We was 1921. It's often considered to be one of the first actual modern dystopian novels. Mm -hmm. It probably would have been heavily influential on, influential on Orwell. Right. It's about people who have to live in a glass house, so the government can always see who they are. And instead of having names, they're just given numbers. Yeah, fairly similar, actually, to 1984. It would be after he, so he kind of wrote some of the earlier, most prominent dystopian books, but you also would have A Brave New World, I think it was before him. Then you also have, then later you would have Fahrenheit 451. But those are often the ones that people will look to as dystopian. That hideous strength is technically a dystopian novel mm -hmm. as well. Dystopian literally means 
bad place. And apparently it was coined by Jeremy Bentham in 1818. But he actually had the term cacotopia, cacotopia, <laughs> which now if people use it, they generally mean uh, something even worse than a dystopian universe. It means anti-utopia. And mm-hmm. a utopia is a perfect society. So obviously dystopia means a deformed bad society. Doesn't the word utopia technically mean a never place or a not place or something? <coughs> it could be right. I seem to remember from the vague time that I knew something about Thomas More. Yeah. And so here's a pretty fairly definitive definition I got. Um, they involve governments that are tyrannical or authoritarian in nature. I mean, the rules of these ruling classes involve segregation, dehumanization, lack of due process or justice system, repression of ideas, religion. But you have that idea. So the big idea is the idea of the big brother, mm-hmm. right? And so definitely 1984 falls into that dystopian category fairly strongly. It is a subgenre of generally a subgenre of sci-fi, speculative fiction, really kind of codified itself in the 1900s as a separate genre of literature. Like, I don't think that H.G. Wells, when he wrote uh, The Time Machine, or definitely not Jonathan Swift when wrote Gulliver's Travels, were thinking of themselves as dystopian writers. Mm. But so it became a genre that was self-conscious and therefore, in some ways, more powerful to do what it needed to do, which is generally warn people about what would happen if they don't change their political mindsets. Mm -hmm. And that's where you kind of see it take its footing and start to run as a genre is in this period of history, again, historically makes sense because that's when you begin to see the rise of states like Germany and Russia. And you would understand why people would be watching these things, these early communist fascist experiments and be scared of them. And so it would give rise to a literature that would respond to that. And they saw dystopian literature as being the best vehicle for it. So that's really all I wanted to say about dystopian literature. I have two thoughts. Yeah. And I'll share them next week. What? Yeah, that's right. It's a cliffhanger. When I we... don't want to wait, Nathan, though. Well, I'll tell him to you off mic then. All right, Jake, aren't you excited to help us with some donor shout outs? Yep. I'm so excited. Let's do it. Oh, no. A wizard took Jake. Oh, no. We're definitely not recording these donor shout outs at a different time. Never. And I'm definitely completely involved and engaged yes brandon is not in... trying to do some double think <laughs> brandon would never do double think no single think old single think brandon that's what we call yeah. him hey brandon why don't you can i just monotonously say the name while you say the name <laughs> why don't you say the name monotonously as possible okay. while i say the name of the donor now of course to become a, a donor what you do is you go to uh, patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the bookening and you give like five, 10, 15 bucks a month. But if you want a donor shout out, you give 10 bucks a month. That's right. And then we'll shout you out like we're doing right here. That's so we right. got Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Rhonda and Robert the Lovebirds. <laughs> the master of double think. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the artful Anthony Dodger. Huh. The artful Anthony Dodger. I'm also going to just like, you're going to have little hunts in there and stuff. Hmm. Very as I interesting. read these things. I'm not reading. No. And not. I'm definitely not preparing for what you probably just heard, which <laughs> no, is weird. We're definitely, we're definitely, yeah, it's, it's like Tenet, man. <laughs> little Anthony Cigar Store. Little Anthony Cigar Store. The Immortal Chelsea E. You know, Little Anthony Cigar Store needs a little more. Mm. Little Anthony Cigar Store. That's right. They provide fine tobacco, beautiful Auburn, Alabama. Check them out if you like to smoke. 
cigars. Yeah. The Immortal Chelsea E. Immortal Chelsea. <laughs> you don't have to sound that disdainful of the Immortal Chelsea. The Immortal hey, Chelsea. Chelsea. We we know Chelsea. We've hung out with Chelsea. Yeah, she's a good gal. She's a good gal. She's fantastic. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. And Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. The Keith Master. Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis and Killing Until We Have Faces. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, including... Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Yep. Console Prime, <laughs> Console Prime Adam. That one, too. <laughs> Jeremy the Dark-Coated Lord of Death. Oh, he knows who he is. Nathan, he does know who he is. Yeah. I hope there's no one on this list that doesn't know who they are. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Maya. Maya. Ryan the Red Avenger and Ryan Judith of the Ladies the of Justice. Avenger. Judith the Ladies of Justice. Danny the Dude. Justice. Danny the Dude. <laughs> DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Benny and Dan of Tiberius. Dan, Eric, yep. Eric from Cat. Oh boy, I'm going to hurry this up, folks, but I love everybody. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Professor and Lady X. Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan. Lavender's Blue. <laughs> Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan. I love you too. Oh, my no, my daughter's Victor. watched that movie the other day. The Kenneth Branagh one? Cinderella. It's good. Yeah. It's solid. It's, it's, it's solid. Yeah. It's, it slaps hard. I don't know if it slaps hard. It's it's, it's it's a really good. She movie. stepped out of the screen and slapped me, and then both my daughters slapped me too. Oh, was it, it hard? Slaps hard, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's all feminist. right. I, I it's not as feminist as that crazy um, Alice in Wonderland movie, though, where she becomes a sea captain at the end. Well, she has to defeat the Jabberwock, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Uh, you know, if there's anything that Lewis Carroll cared about, it was feminine empowerment and uh, the hero's journey. He was really yeah. big on those two things. Yep, that's why he took so many pictures. <laughs> I might, not, I might just leave that in. I don't know. Lewis <laughs> Carroll was a creepy guy. Not my fault. Not your fault. Uh, Mary Cheap, the fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Yep. Rachel. Rachel. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Queen Kong Geta. Queen Kong Geta. Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Timothy Jay the Rider of Dawn. Eric and Kate, the Camp Jump Kings, who are warm and love bees. Maddie, Maddie, Matt, Man, Sweet, Dream of Sunshine. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. And Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Cold Steel Cody, Jacqueline the Librarian, Barbarian, John Bombadillo, Bombdiggity, and Captain Tenniel, his mate. Saxophone Alex, Eli the Scarlet Pilgrim, the other saxophone Alex, and Dubstep Danny, Brian the Terror of Texas, Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Please send cheese. Ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, bum. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Hope they're all gonna be that wonderful. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Brandon. You're welcome, Nathan. Oh, Jake's back from the tor- horrible, horrible thing that happened to him. I'm sure I'm glad he survived. Yep, I'm here. Bye. It I'm- was terrible. Thanks for doing that to me. I didn't do it to you. <laughs> I think I, you did. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Jake has his ways. <laughs> you shot him in that one episode. <laughs> Early booking. He doesn't die. Jake doesn't die. He is tuck everlasting. Jake don't die. I'm a deathless being. I am big brother. Jake don't die. <laughs> Jake don't die. Oh, I have three thoughts. All right. We'll be back. <laughs>